The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. So at this time, we're going to take a moment to consider what the Lord has done for us at the cross. And as we consider the cross tonight, I want us to make sure that we are not simply coming together to think about this as just the thing we do on Good Friday. This is not just a ritualistic event. This is not just a once-a-year moment to consider the cross. This is intended to change us so that we might daily trust in our Savior Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us, we thank you for coming. We want to make sure that before you go tonight that you've met myself or Mike, who's up here as one of the elders, or Steve, who's sitting right here in front of me, or Jim, who opened the service with a prayer. We want to get to know you, and we want to know how to serve you and love you best in the name of the Lord. It is our practice here at our church to preach through the Bible verse by verse. So we'll pick a book, and we'll begin at verse 1, and then we'll take however long it takes for that book to get through to us. We're not so much worried about how fast we get through the book. We are currently making our way through the book of Acts, which chronicles the birth and the early days of the church as it expanded across the globe. And now we have arrived at chapter 2. So please go ahead and turn there in your own copy of the scriptures. But for tonight and for Sunday morning, we are going to give a special focus on only a few specific aspects of this chapter. Namely, we're going to focus our attention in on verses 22 through 24. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along as I read. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible For him to be held by it. Once again, let's approach the throne of our Father in heaven as we pray. Dear Lord, as we come to you tonight, we pray that we would recognize the immense value of what Jesus did on our behalf at the cross. I pray that not one person here would leave without the significance of Christ's death being impressed deeply into our mind and into our heart. Lord, I pray for those who know you in a saving way, who have placed their faith in you, who are truly saved individuals. I pray that this information will not simply be news. It will not simply be a reminder, but it will be like a fire lit in our hearts that gives us a desire to live for the one who died for us. And God, I pray for those who don't know you in this room, those who have gathered here with us tonight that have no clue of what it means to truly trust in a Savior who can wipe away every sin. God, I pray for them that tonight would be what your word calls it, the day of salvation, that they might trust in Jesus for the very first time and be saved. Lord, I pray for all of the things that I am to say tonight, that you would give me wisdom. 
But I recognize that without you, I have nothing to share with these people. And I pray, Lord, that tonight as I profess your word and I proclaim the glorious nature of the gospel, that you would be with me and you would be speaking through me. God, I pray that you would give me strength and clarity, that I might preach with passion and compassion. And Lord, I pray that you would do what I could never do, that by your Holy Spirit, you would change lives and change hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I like to think of myself as a sophisticated person when it comes to my tastes for entertainment. But then if I really think about it, most of the time, when I actually have time to watch a movie, it ends up being a superhero film. In particular, I have enjoyed the Marvel movies over the, more than the last decade. I realize that the one thing, or one of the things, I suppose, that keeps me coming back again and again is that each movie is like a little promise that something bigger is coming later. Everything is building up to something else. Functionally, each movie is just a preview. And a week from now, their movie Endgame will be released, and they are billing this as the conclusion, the grand finale to their 22-movie universe. Even the title is declaring that this movie is designed to be the exclamation point that everything has been moving towards, that has been pointing to. This is the fulfillment of the promise of entertainment. You can call me skeptical here because I know that they still want to make money and they still want to make movies, so I assume that there's going to be a bigger and badder problem with stronger heroes to fight them in the near future. But the Bible does have a point. The Bible does have something that is foreshadowed and that is pointed to for chapter after chapter and book after book until finally the conclusion is reached. And the crucifixion is the central point of all human history. The cross is at the very heart of God's plan, not just for you or for Jesus, but the entire universe. So our aim tonight is going to be to see three specific ways that God's word foreshadowed what was coming at the cross. And in doing so, it's going to help us reveal the significance that is placed on the cross. What is the purpose of this man hanging and dying on that tree? So first we're going to look into the sacrificial system. Then we're going to see the suspended serpent. And finally, we will consider the suffering substitute. Let's begin by setting our minds on the sacrificial system. For those of us who grew up here in the Western world, here in the United States or somewhere in Europe or somewhere in even South America or other parts of Australia, things that would have a westernized culture, the concept of sacrificial systems is bizarre to us. It's absolutely foreign to us, and it seems even deadly and disgusting to us. It's almost unthinkable that you would take an animal and you would slit its throat and you would let it bleed out before you light it on fire and then just watch it burn. That seems like a strange way to worship in our minds. However, this practice exists in every single ancient culture in history and it is still practiced by many, in fact, most religions in the world today. But where did this come from? Why is it that this practice is so pervasive throughout all human history and all cultures? The answer is given in this way, that the system was put in place directly following our first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve broke the one command that God gave them. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. 
Because the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That's the one job. And what do they do? They get tempted and Eve sins and she gives the fruit to her husband who is with her and he eats it and he sins. And in doing so, they plunge the entire human race into a rebellion against God. It was then that they first felt shame and they recognized something that had always been true, but they had never noticed it before. They were naked. But they never had shame before that moment. And now they realize there's something to be ashamed of in themselves. They were ashamed because of sin. And it is then, after their sin and shame came to place, it is then that we read in Genesis 3.21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The very first physical death in the universe was a life taken by God. God killed an animal. And why would he do that? Why would God take that animal's life rather than the life of Adam or Eve? God killed an innocent creature and used it to cover the shame of their sin. Now we see in the story of Cain and Abel that Adam and Eve passed on this practice of sacrifice to their own children. And ten generations later, God destroyed all but eight people. He destroyed everyone else, almost 100% of the population of the planet, with an earth-shattering flood. We call the flood of Noah. And the very first thing that he does when exiting the ark is what? He sacrifices some of those animals. Noah, the father of all of us who are alive today, made a, a precedent that was then passed down to every culture that comes to follow. Sacrifice. That is how we worship God. But God makes it much more clear through the law of Moses exactly what is supposed to be understood by these sacrifices. The longest portion in the entire Old Testament concerning what his sacrifice is all about is found in Leviticus chapters 16 and 17, dealing with the reason God gave the sacrificial system and exactly how you are to do this. He says, specifically, when it all boils down to it, in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, God states, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now, I want you to notice two things about this text. First, the purpose of sacrifice is to atone for sin. It is to erase it so that it is no longer a barrier between God and man. Sacrifice is necessary for the holy, perfect God of the universe, the creator, to have a relationship with the imperfect, contaminated, unholy creature that is you and I. It is the sacrifice that takes away sin. But also notice who it is that is going to present the only acceptable sacrifice. Sarah, can we pull that one up again real fast? I want you to see this in the text. Who is it that presents the sacrifice? I have given it for you on the altar. It is God who gives the acceptable sacrifice. Every single animal that was ever killed on an altar in Israel was worthless, except for the fact that it was pointing forward to the true sacrifice that God himself was going to make, the one that he would use to cover the sin of many. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 makes it clear that animal sacrifices had no power to actually take away sins. The sacrifices must take the life of a perfect spotless lamb. 
right? But the lamb was just pointing forward to an individual. 1400 years after the Lord gave Moses the commands about the spotless sacrifice, the true sacrificial lamb appeared. One day, John the Baptist is out ministering to the people in Judea, and he looked up in the horizon, and what did he see? He sees his cousin, Jesus, walking by him. And he declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's talking about a sacrificial lamb. There is no other way to understand what he is saying. This is precisely what Jesus was doing at the cross. He was taking sin away from us and placing it on himself. As it says in 1 Peter chapter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Which leads us now to our second form of foreshadowing of the cross. The suspended serpent. Of course you know that the serpent was a depiction of evil in the Bible. Every time you see it, there's something bad happening. Of course, we already spoke about Adam and Eve. It was the serpent that tempted her. It was the serpent that was cursed by God, which is what makes the story that we find in Numbers 21 so peculiar. The people of Israel had just been delivered from slavery in Egypt. God was even providing food for them that would literally just fall out of the sky six days a week. All they had to do to get food was to walk outside and pick it up. This might not sound crazy to us because for us, all we do is walk to the grocery store and pick it up, slide a little piece of plastic through a machine, and bingo, we've got our dinner. But that's not how it works In the ancient world. That's not how it works in our world today. Whenever you get something from the store, you don't see all of the people that are working together to grow the food and sometimes to feed that food to an animal and then kill the animal and cut it into the right pieces and preserve it the right ways. And I don't even know what I'm talking about right now because I don't know how food is made because we are so far removed from the procedures. However, these people did not have that kind of lifestyle. If you wanted to eat in those days, you grew your food, and then you killed your food, and you cut up your food, and you cooked your food, and you ate your food. There was no fast food. But they had free food outside every single day, and they walk outside, and they do what? They complain. They're not, they're not slaves anymore. They're free. They've got everything that they need. It even says that God was supernaturally keeping their clothes so that their clothes would not wear out while they were in the wilderness. They have no need for anything. And what do they do? They just complain. They grumble. So it says in Numbers 21, verse 6. Well, first of all, in the previous verse, it says that they called the food worthless food in verse 5. So it says in verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. I've listened to several people who are not Christians talk about this. And they would say, what a horrible God this is, that he would judge those people that way. He just seems like a teenager who gets his feelings hurt, and he sends snakes in to go fight those people he doesn't like. You have to understand, God is doing something very significant here. God is using the event that is taking place here for something that is going to last far longer than the few moments or the few hours that are taking place in this chapter. Listen carefully to what happens. The people of Israel had just been delivered. Now they're complaining. Now they've been bit. And now they're dying. God then commanded Moses to provide a way of healing for the people. He doesn't just send a serpent, a bunch of serpents to kill them. He also makes a way of salvation for them. Notice what it says in the following verses. 
It says, make a fiery serpent, which means a poisonous serpent, by the way, and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. You and I are supposed to see ourselves here in this story. We are supposed to compare ourselves not to Moses. We are not Moses in this story. You and I are the Israelites. The wages of sin is death. We are worthy of God's punishment, each and every one of us. You work hard at your job to get a paycheck. Or I assume you do. Some people don't, but I'm assuming you do because you seem like the kind of people that would work hard at your job. The Bible tells us that you worked really hard at your job of sinning and that the wages for even one sin is death. But we've worked a lot harder than that. We've earned a lot of death for ourselves. We have put in the work, and God is going to give us the appropriate payment, which is death. You have not been bitten by a poisonous snake, but you have something much more dangerous than venom flowing through your veins right now. But because God is holy, he must punish that sin. He must punish sin. Every sin that is ever committed will be punished. Because he is good, and because he is righteous as a judge, he cannot let guilty people go free. This is why Jesus picks up this very same story in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 14, and he explains to this fearful Pharisee who's only willing to come see him in the middle of the night, and he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Get the picture of what Jesus is describing. Nicodemus would have fully understood what Jesus is talking about from Numbers 21. He knows the story. He is a teacher of the people of Israel. He is one of the 70 most intelligent, theologically minded men of his day. And he knows what Jesus means that the serpent was lifted up by Moses. Now, whoever would look to this bronze serpent, what happened? What would take place? They would be healed. Instantly and completely and fully without question, even though they didn't deserve it, even though they were just as guilty as everyone else who refused to look, anyone who would look to the serpent on the pole would be completely restored. There was nothing they could ever do to heal themselves. Apart from looking, they would certainly die. All they could do would be to look and to live. Now, Jesus was saying that eternal life is not gained by good works. It is not gained by some adherence to a legal code. Rather, eternal life is granted only to those who look and live, who see the Messiah lifted up in the same manner of the serpent on the pole and see that as valuable as for salvation. But why was Jesus represented here as a serpent? It seems strange, right? Why wouldn't God tell Moses to make a bronze lamb and put it up on a pole? Why a serpent? The answer to this question makes the sacrifice of Jesus so much more amazing if you grasp what Jesus is saying here. If you get the picture of the metaphor, if you understand why God chose this animal and not another. Jesus not only left the glory of heaven. That's mind-boggling. He has been worshipped for, since the creation of angels, he's been worshipped by angels, seated in the heavenly places, with no suffering of any kind, And Jesus not only left that, which is amazing in and of itself, he not only came here to take on human flesh, which is bizarre, that God himself would become part of the creation, he not only left his riches and became poor, he not only left his throne to become a servant, he also left his place there where he was 
completely perfect and sinless. And then this life lived a life of perfection where he was tempted in all ways, yet as without sin, he also took the sins of all who would ever be saved on himself. That is why he looked like a serpent on that pole. It should make you stop and wonder in complete awe when you read verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let's consider that for a moment. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, this verse is telling us that God the Father made God the Son who never sinned to be sin. That should make you stop. If you have any notion of the purity and holiness and and perfection and righteousness of the Son of God, to see that he was made to be sin should be absolutely stunning to you. It should be shocking to you. When we look at sin, we have low standards. You have low standards, I have low standards, and the reason for that is we don't usually compare ourselves to God. We normally compare ourselves to each other or to that neighbor over there. I see what he's doing. I'm better than that guy. You're right. You probably are better than that guy, but it doesn't matter because ultimately God doesn't compare you to that guy. God compares you to himself and to his own standards of holiness because he is holy and has called us likewise to be holy. So you might look nice when you're comparing yourself to someone else, but not compared to the perfection of Jesus Christ. But think about even that, even though you and I have low standards for perfection and holiness, even though we have very low standards of what it means to be righteous, we still get disgusted by sin. Do we not? Do you not look at certain things and think, I would never want to talk to that guy. I would want to stay very far away from that. I mean, murderers, pedophiles, you see these things that happen on television. You're like, ah, that is horrifying. I do not want to be associated with that kind of an individual. We see sin and we think that is disturbing. The worst of all of those sins that you can think of, the ones that make you absolutely cringe, you're morally outraged by those things. That's good. Yet consider the fact that on the cross, Christ bore those very sins in his body on the tree in order to pay for them. That is why you and I are able to look at Christ who appeared as the greatest sinner who ever lived, as Martin Luther says. He appeared to God as the worst of all sinners because he bore the sins of his people, everyone who would ever be saved on his shoulders that day, and he died for those sins that he did not commit. Which brings us now to our final point, the suffering substitute. All throughout the Old Testament, there are glimpses of the cross. There are many myriads of them that we're not even going to consider this morning, but all throughout the Old Testament, we see little pictures and little vignettes here and there of what is going to take place at the cross. The spotless lamb and the serpent on the pole are just two of them that foreshadow what was to come. But for the most part, it does not make it clear immediately that it is a person who is going to die on behalf of the people. Alongside these promises that were coming, the lamb and the serpent, there was also a promise of an individual who would come to restore everything that Adam and Eve lost, to restore what Israel was supposed to be in their obedience to God. There was a promise of a Messiah who would come and who would establish his eternal kingdom, not a kingdom of man. One of the most astonishing revelations that we can ever see in the prophetic books of the Old Testament is what is made clear when the Messiah would come 
he would actually be the one to suffer as the substitute for God's people. It's the first time that there is a sense that the lamb that takes away the sins of the world and the serpent that is on the pole who would save all who look are both pictures not of a creature, but of the creator himself. So allow me to read for you from Isaiah 53. I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. And as I read, I want you to visualize what is taking place on the cross. I want you to see the things that are here paralleled with what it's speaking about at the death of Jesus. This passage, written 700 years before the crucifixion, in fact, 440 years before the earliest crucifixion we know about in all of human history, this is clearly speaking about what Jesus was doing when he was dying in our place. Let's read the text together. I'll read and you can follow along. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There's a lot here. Literally, we could just preach on this text for years to come but notice these details first of all every single time it mentions you or me or the reader of this text whoever it might be in the past or future it can it continually tells us that we are a specific kind of person we are the ones who are guilty 
We are the ones who, like sheep, have gone astray. We are the ones who have rebelled. We are the ones deserving of God's wrath. Yet it speaks of him and says that he is the one who pays the price. He is the one that is oppressed and afflicted. He is the one that is despised by men. He is the one who is treated undeservingly, and he is giving us the beneficiary of God's love. The prophet Isaiah is revealing that it would be a person who would eventually be crushed by God as a pleasing sacrifice. And it would be a man who would redeem all of mankind. When Pilate was presenting Jesus to the crowds for the crucifixion, in John 19, verse 5, he said, Behold the man. 1 Timothy 2.5 declares, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We celebrate Christmas. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, forever with God the Father and the Spirit, living in a perfect unity with one another, obeyed his Father and left his throne on high and became a man. He didn't lose his godness, but he gained humanness. He was fully God and fully man at all times. In our text today, of Acts chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, it presents the death of Jesus from two specific angles. Let me read that again and remind you how Peter describes the event of the crucifixion. It says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. First, Notice that this text reveals that all that happened to Jesus was the plan. This was all planned out by God. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. From heaven's vantage point, the cross was definite. It was absolutely locked in. It was unchangeable. It was indeed the hinge on which God intended the entire history of the universe to swing The father not only knew about it, according to this passage we just read, the father planned it. It was his purpose. God was not taken off guard. He was not surprised that this was taking place to his son. That is why Revelation 13.8 can accurately describe Jesus' death as being slain before the foundations of the earth. This had been God's plan even before the creation of Adam and Eve. Even before they ate of that fruit, he had already destined that Christ would come to redeem his people from their sins. Jesus explains this very thing in John chapter 10, verse 18, when he says this regarding his life and his death. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. What charge? The charge to lay down his life and the charge to take it up again. Jesus was commissioned by the father to lay down his life. But there is another side of this story. God the father is the one who set this into motion. But we must notice that there are no puppets or programmed robots fulfilling these events. The death of Jesus was carried out by real people. People exactly like you and me. The crown of thorns, the cat of nine tails, the the nails that were in his hand, those were all merely tools of human brutality. 
There was actual human effort behind each one of them. Somebody had to pull those thorns off of a tree and begin to wrap them into a circlet to put on his head. Somebody had to take those nails and physically hammer them through his hands. Somebody had to take that whip and beat him with it. These are human beings performing these events who had every ounce of the same kind of life that you and I have, the same kind of decision-making ability as you and I have. These people intentionally chose what was taking place. Every fist that punched his face belonged to a sinner. And the fingers that violently grabbed his beard and ripped it out of his face belonged to a person with an eternal soul, just like you and me. Jesus was the creator. He was the designer of every single mouth that spit on him. But I want you to notice that this sermon in Acts 2 is not being preached to the people who physically killed Jesus. It's not being preached to the ones who brutalized Jesus' body. Peter is not aiming this accusation against the religious rulers, the Jews that plotted the death of Christ. He is not focusing here on the Romans who actually held the nails and nailed them into his hands. Verse 9 through 11 tells us where these people are hearing this oration from. They are not from Jerusalem. Notice what it says. Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. He is preaching to foreigners at this point. He is preaching to visitors to Jerusalem. Notice that he addresses these foreign travelers in the marketplace in the second part of the verse. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's not saying that you physically did it. The hands of lawless men did it, but you did it. You are guilty. You are the one that pulled the trigger, metaphorically speaking. Notice how Peter addresses these men. These travelers are called sinners. Though they never held the whip in their hands, though they never held the nails or the hammer, they were complicit. Even though they never did any of the actual abuse to Christ's body, they bore the guilt. Though they were the ones, not the ones who wove that crown of thorns or pierced Jesus with the spear, Peter is speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit and declaring them to be culpable and blameworthy. So let me just speak to you for a moment. You and I were not physically present at the cross. We were not there either. We were not the ones who made that decision in terms of screaming out, crucify him. We are not the ones who held the hammer in our hands either. But every single time you have chosen to go your own way rather than to honor God in your life, it is as though you were standing right there at the foot of the cross mocking the Messiah. I will not have you to rule over me. I am going to do exactly what I want to do. And who are you to tell me anything other than what I already feel like doing in my own heart? Every single person in the building tonight entered in one of two conditions. The first possibility is that you are still living in your sin and in your rebellion against God. You are standing at the foot of that cross declaring, I do not need the sacrifice that you made. You mock the death of Christ. Some do this by being irreligious, maybe even being atheistic and imagining that there is no God. They think that their actions are completely fine because nobody will ever judge them. They reject even the notion that God exists at all. They imagine that they are responsible to nobody except for themselves and maybe to the society or the government. Other people reject the blood of Christ because they believe they don't need it in order to be right with God. 
If you've ever tried to share the gospel with anyone, you've probably heard the same answer that I have so many times. I'm a pretty good person. It's all good. I don't need, you don't need to worry about me. I'm a good person. God knows that. God knows that I'm fine. I'll just die and then I'll get up there and he'll be like, yeah, of course, I want you in here with me because you're a good guy. But that's not the way that the Bible speaks of us. And by doing so, by imagining that you are right with God, you are bringing yourself up to the level of the divine and you are bringing God down to such a low standard that you don't think his holiness is actually that holy at all. So at the foot of the cross, they look at him and they say, thanks, but I'm good on my own. Other people will say that they need the blood of Jesus. Yes, I am saved only by the blood of Christ to be made right with God. But then they really don't trust that statement that they've made at all. Instead, they believe that the reason they'll be forgiven is because of some sort of combination of Jesus' blood plus all of their own merit, all of their own good works, all of their own, uh, their own efforts that they pursue, their own forms of righteousness. What might that be? Well, I'm good because I said a prayer or I got baptized or I gave a lot of money, or I adhere to some specific religious code, whatever that might be, I am good because God would be happy with all the work that I'm putting in for him. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it says that even your most righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. Now, I'm going to take this and explain it a little bit, because I feel like oftentimes this is referenced or quoted without much explanation, because the explanation is absolutely disturbing. But I'm going to take a moment to do so because I think it will be beneficial to us tonight. Imagine that you give God a present. You give him a gift and you expect that he's going to love this gift. In fact, you're going to think that this gift is going to be something that buys your favor from him. So you give him this gift and he opens the box and inside are menstrual cloths. Young people in the room, you don't need to know what I'm talking about. Adults, you know what I'm saying. That's what is being spoken about in this term, filthy rags. This is not just like you cleaned your sink out and threw the rag in the box. In fact, this goes far beyond just the fact that it's disgusting. The fact is, under the Old Covenant law, this kind of a rag would make somebody ceremonially unclean. It would set you outside of the camp. You were not allowed to even go in to be around the rest of the people, much less go into the place of worship. You were not allowed near to the place of God in this scenario. So please understand what is happening. You're giving God a box and saying, I want you to be pleased with this because it is so righteous and good. And he looks at it and he sees it as putrid and disturbing and unclean and unholy and unrighteous and ungodly. One thing that we must see that we are talking about here is that he requires perfection. And by thinking that your good works are perfection, you have greatly underestimated the nature of our God. He requires that you and I live a life without a single sin. For as it says in James, that if you've broken one law, you're guilty of the entirety of the law. You have no hope, and neither do I. Our lives begin in rebellion against the Lord. We start out that way, and we are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by choice. That's why we choose different styles of sin. Your favorite flavor might be different than mine, but there is certainly something true about each one of us, that from the time you are in the nursery downstairs, your propensity of your heart is to pursue rebellion against the authority that God has placed over you. Just ask any child. They don't like to obey their parents. Why not? Because God has set up an authority over them. We rebel against our parents just like we rebel against God. We have a heart that seeks out our own desires. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. 
And there are certainly some seated here who are currently in rebellion at the foot of the cross saying, no, thank you, God. I'm not interested in what is taking place here. But I want you to know there's a second condition that you can be in. And every single person that I'm speaking to who is saved tonight is only saved because they previously were in the condition I am just mentioning. Whether they denied God's existence, denied God's holiness, or they believed that their own righteousness was good enough, whatever it might be, every single person started as a a rebel and a person rejecting God's love and the gospel. But there is a second possible condition. There are those whose hearts turn away from mocking God with their lives, and they see Christ on that cross, no longer mocking him, but seeing him for who he really is. We see that Jesus is the perfect lamb who came to take away the sin of the world, including my own. We see that he is the one who came to be lifted up so that everyone who looks to him might live. And we saw in Isaiah 53 that Jesus is our proxy who suffered in our place on that killing tree. And he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. So we who used to stand in rebellion and mock Christ with our lives now stand before that same cross and we look up to the one who died for us and there's only one thing that we can say. All you can do is say thank you. That's all we've got. You did not do anything to earn that or to buy it. When we come together on Good Friday, we come looking at the most amazing grace the history of this universe has ever seen. There will never be event, an event throughout all of the future, and there has never been one throughout all of the past, where such glorious grace has been poured out, where the perfect Holy Son of God took our sins and gave us His righteousness. So we look up to that one and say thank you, as it says in Romans 5, 6-11, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So let me summarize. That is a massive text full of glorious truth. Let me summarize very briefly. It says, speaking of people like you and me, we were ungodly. We were sinners. We were under his wrath. We were his enemies. All of those are the ways that we are described. But the death of Jesus Christ causes we who were in the state of evil to be reconciled and redeemed and given life and given righteousness and given justification and even, as it says, given peace with God. If you are here as an enemy of God, please know that so was everyone else at some point. We all started out that way, but God is gracious and Christ's death has guaranteed forgiveness for everyone who will look to Christ for forgiveness. So call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And for those who have been saved, those who are here that are just here because this is what you do as a Christian. You go to church when the doors are open. You come and you sing the songs and you hear the sermons and you sit in the chairs and get uncomfortable because they're not comfortable chairs. And then you're just ready to go at the end and you don't really care about the fellowship. You just do this because that's what Christians do. Please let me tell you something. Good Friday is a time that we set our attention on the cross, but that is supposed to be every day of your life. 
That's supposed to be every moment as a Christian. You are never supposed to look down or, or, or separate your attention from the, the fact that Christ died in your place. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, it says that God raised him up. Do you understand that this Christ who died for you also lives right now to be your Lord and your King? As Christians, we are called to live every day for our King. The way that we say thank you is to live our life for him, a life of obedience, a life following the commands of Scripture, a life doing what he has called us to do. And that includes not just going to church. It includes loving Christ by loving the bride of Christ, the church. We're, right now we're preaching through the book of Acts. And as we go through the book of Acts, the primary focal point is how God is working in the local churches. He does not want people to just be a lone ranger, separating themselves and going out, doing whatever it is that they feel like doing, and only attending church on that special occasion, whatever it might be. No, the church is to live as the bride of Christ together, serving one another and loving one another, doing all of the one anothering statements that are called because our Savior lives. Now, the second part of this verse, we're not going to focus much on it, verse 24. We're going to spend that time on Sunday morning taking our focus not just to the cross, but also to what comes at the resurrection. But allow me to close this sermon by showing you how heaven views the cross and also how it views the Savior who died there. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 13 says this, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Speaking of the cross, what is heaven singing about? What part of Jesus' ministry are they focusing themselves upon? What is it that they can't get over? It is the fact that he was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now I urge those who do not know the Lord tonight as their savior, do not let this church service pass you by as though everything is now the same. God has confronted you through the word, and I ask you and I plead with you, do not sleep on that. Do not leave without talking to one of us about this gospel. Do not rest until you have trusted in Christ for your salvation. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He is the only one to whom you can look and live. He is the one who suffered as your only possible substitute. He is the one who has given an unfair trade, his righteousness, and all he gets in return is your sin and punishment. But he offers that freely to all who believe. So I plead with you, if you don't know Christ in a saving way, trust in him and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, that you loved the world so much that you sent your Son, that you loved the world in such a way that you would be willing to send your Son for the purpose of dying and purchasing back a people for himself. God, I pray that tonight every person in this room would be deeply trusting in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would live a lifestyle that is in accordance with what we have declared with our mouth that we believe. And for those who don't know you in a saving way, who have never believed, who have never placed their faith in Christ, I pray that today you would break down any barrier. If there is anything specific that is holding them back, God, I pray you would do what only the Holy Spirit can, that you would draw them, 
and you would bring them to yourself, give them the gifts of faith and repentance, and show them the glorious nature of the gospel that they might believe and be saved. Lord, we trust you, we thank you, and we glory in the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time Mike's going to come forward and close out our service.